you have your study guides today that I uh, provided for you, the uh, sermon study notes on today's sermon. This series is called 40 Days of Wow. And we're in search of cynicism, or <laughs> we're in search of wonder. <laughs> Whoops. We're in search of wonder. Uh, that was a Freudian thing, I guess. But I, you know, it's, a, it's a season, uh, Christmas, where it's easier than usual to be cynical. And it's easy to be cynical all the time because there's a lot that when you're in that dark place in your mind, you can be cynical about. There's plenty to be cynical about if you're, if you're prone to that. And especially at Christmas, I think. So I wanted to talk about this. For six weeks, we're talking about wonder and cynicism. And to start today's message, I just thought I would share with you one of my favorite online videos. It's, uh, it's this one of these, uh, these starlings, this flock of starlings, um, that uh, is a species of bird that is actually not native to, United, to, the, to North America, um, but they're all over North America now. But they weren't even introduced to this continent until uh, 1890, when a group of Shakespeare enthusiasts decided it was their life's mission to populate North America with every species of bird that Shakespeare ever mentioned in his sonnets and plays. And so they released 12 starlings in Central Park in New York City in 1890. And now, 130 or so years later, uh, there are an estimated 200 million starlings in North America. So these little fellows have been busy. Um, <laughs> these starlings are quite successful. And, um, and so... What you're watching now is, is uh, it's called a uh, murmuration. And a, a murmuration is, uh, is uh, something that scientists don't quite understand yet. We don't know why they murmurate, but we do know a little bit now about how they murmurate. And it's just the most amazing thing when you watch it because it looks a little bit like they're all of one mind. It looks like they're all one unit. It almost looks like they're one thing at some, some points when they're really densely packed together. But the way this happens is that each starling is only responsible for the seven starlings around it. So uh, each starling has an eye on seven starlings in its orbit. Not eight and not six, only seven. This is the craziest thing. But they just keep an eye on the seven starlings right around it. And when every starling in a flock reacts and responds to the movements of the seven starlings around it, this is what happens. You get a murmuration. And whenever I see something like this, I am reminded that the world is bigger than me and that there is a creative force behind the universe that I can't fully understand. And even in my skeptical and, and agnostic days, I used to find comfort in videos like this one that reminded me that maybe there is more of a guiding hand in the universe than I'm ready to admit or acknowledge. And, and now that I've come to faith in Jesus, these videos and, and revelations of the glory of creation mean even more to me because uh, it shows the goodness and creativity and wonder of God. And when life feels out of control, when it feels like life is snowballing, when it feels like you've got too much to do, you're always falling behind, you're failing in some way at every part of your life, the gifts that you've bought everybody is not enough, the parties you're trying to get to, you can't get to them all, like Christmas is the prime time for feeling behind in life, which is ironic because we're worshiping the one who was born at Christmas, worshiping the one who said, don't worry about all that stuff, and here we are. And so for me, it helps to step back and see the grandeur and wonder of creation in something as simple as the murmuration of these birds. Today, as we continue in this series, what we're really focusing on, I hope, 
and I hope what you're ready to think about today, is how we find God in the most ordinary and mundane and blasé seasons of life. We can all praise his name and lift him up when things are extraordinary, when you get the good news you were hoping for, when you've got forward progress. But how do you find God when everything's the same? When other people have forward progress, but you're not going anywhere. When it seems like uh, life is boring, 50 hours at a desk, if you're lucky, or at a cubicle, 50 hours, another 50 hours on the way to and from work, thanks to Houston traffic, like another, you know, uh, how, how, who knows how many hours just being, um, you know, pestered by life's uh, mundane, bill-paying, errand-running kind of stuff. And when nothing changes and everything just seems like a grind, where is God in that? So you can find God on your exotic vacation, but where is God in the everyday realness of life? And this is tough for me. This is tough for all of us, I think, because if you're, let's say, 40 or under, or even, no, no, this started with the baby boomers, actually. So <laughs> I'm making this up as I go, but let's, I think it even started with the baby boomers who were the first generation, I think, who might have been taught that you're supposed to be extraordinary and that being ordinary is not enough. And having just a regular life where you just pay your dues and you grind away, like the boomers' parents did that. And so the boomers wanted to be exceptional all the time, special, set apart, extraordinary. And if you're ordinary, you're failing. And that kind of has trickled down to other generations as well. And I was raised with that feeling that you, you, you don't want to be ordinary. You want to stand out. And I remember as a child um, despising the ordinariness of my life. Like I had friends that had the most dramatic stories. Their parents hated each other or they were neglected or, you know, like awful things happened to them. They had a story to tell. I didn't have any of those stories. You know, like and my parents love me and they love each other and they're still together, a pretty normal life and no struggle and, and I'm just an ordinary guy. I remember even as a child hating my name because it was so ordinary. Eric. Who wants to be named Eric? Eric Huffman. And I remember despising my ordinary white bread name so much that one Christmas I even asked Santa to change it. This is a true story. This is my Christmas list when I was eight years old and number 36. As you can see, just below Carmen Tyler's phone number, a tape player, and uh, more girlfriends, number 33. Um, 35 is a cordless telephone. You ask your parents, millennials, what that is. And number 36... Y'all are judging me now. It's a new name. And you, can you see the hint that I gave Santa? <laughs> Gary. I wanted to be Gary. Just an example. I wanted to be Gary because the New York Mets had a catcher named Gary Carter who had the most fabulous mullet I'd ever seen in my life. And I wanted to be Gary like him. I wanted to be Gary. And I didn't want to be Gary Huffman. I wanted to be Gary Jackson because I had Michael Jackson's leather jacket with all the zippers. From, uh, all right, y'all young youngsters uh, don't, don't even know. You don't even know Michael Jackson, how cool he was back in the day in the 80s. The zippers and I'm bad and all that stuff. And I, I wanted to be Gary Jackson because I wanted to be cool and black like Michael Jackson. <laughs> you can imagine my surprise 10 years later when I learned that he wanted to be white like me. But anyway, that was beside the point. That was beside the point. All right, so is it too soon? Okay, maybe. So we keep going. So listen. I learned in high school that my last name, as if my first name wasn't common enough, my last name Huffman comes from an old German title, which means farmer who looks after someone else's farm. 
So I'm Eric Farmer and the farm's not even mine. And just really bummed out by that. And, and just, you know, really, I'm just being silly, but the ordinariness of life really would get to me. Still does, I'm not careful. I still think other people are doing better than me if their life looks more extraordinary than mine. And I think it's something that we all are tempted by, especially at Christmas. Um, one thing that shook me of this was discovering my favorite Christian thinker, who I quote more than anyone else in my sermons, G.K. Chesterton, who in his book, his horribly titled book, Heretics, uh, <laughs> nobody reads it because it's called Heretics. You should read it. Uh, he talks about the ordinariness of a name like Smith. He says Smith is the most ordinary name, and people that are named Smith usually don't want to be named Smith because it's so common. It's ordinary. And he says, you have any idea like where the name Smith comes from? You should wear the name Smith with pride. It comes from the blacksmiths. Where would we be without the blacksmiths? And this is what he said. This is what he wrote. Y'all just take this in. This is all inspired by the name Smith. All right. This is, this is when I fell in love with Chesterton. In the case of Smith, the name is so poetical that it must be an arduous and heroic matter for the man to live up to it. The name of Smith is the name of the one trade that even kings respected. The spirit of the smithy is so close to the spirit of song that it is mixed in a million poems and every blacksmith is a harmonious blacksmith. Even the village children feel that in some dim way the smith is poetic as the grocer and cobbler are not poetic when they feast on the dancing sparks and deafening blows in the cavern of that creative violence. The brute repose of nature, the passionate cunning of man, the strongest of earthly metals, the weirdest of earthly elements, the unconquerable iron subdued by its only conqueror, the wheel and the plowshare the sword and the steam hammer, the arraying of armies and the whole legend of arms. All these things are written briefly indeed, but quite legibly on the visiting card of Mr. Smith. Yet our novelists call their hero Almer Valance, which means nothing, or Vernon Raymond, which means nothing, when it is in their power to give him this sacred name of Smith, the name made of iron and flame. It would be very natural if a certain arrogance, a certain carriage of the head, a certain curl of the lip distinguished everyone whose name is Smith. From the darkest dawn of history, this clan has gone forth to battle. Its trophies are on every hand. Its name is everywhere. It is older than the nations, and its sign is the hammer of Thor. Come on! Like, how do you get that from Smith? It's incredible. You would be inspired to write something like this from a name as common as Smith. How? Because when you learn to see God in the most ordinary things in life, you are incapable of cynicism. Cynicism is beyond you. You don't even speak the language because you see God in the most ordinary of things. I'm going to pick up my book now, okay? All right, so thank you, GK, for rocking my world again. It's changed my whole perspective, um, the ability to find God in ordinary things. There's, there's three things that I've got on my mind today, three ways, common everyday ways that you, if you find yourself in an ordinary season of life, bored, restless, feeling like you're watching other people pass you by, getting the things you think you deserve while you're just there in your cubicle or wherever, I hope that this sermon um, changes your perspective. And the first thing that I think matters most is that we leave behind this search we have for happiness and that we embrace a search for joy. Like the psalmist writes, King David, in Psalm 16, 11, he says to God, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have been raised to think that joy and happiness are synonymous. We switch them out in our papers. We 
we overuse the word happy and we look up in the thesaurus and it says joy. And so we replace it with joy. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Especially in the Bible. In the Bible, there are very different words for happiness and joy. And the word for happiness appears maybe two dozen times in the whole Bible. The word for joy appears over 200 times. Joy is a biblical uh, uh, virtue. Happiness is not. It's just not. I'm sorry. It does not come. God is, God is not have plans to make you happy. That's not in his plans for you. His plan is to make you joyful. It's a very different thing. And the easiest way to talk about the difference between happiness and joy is that happiness is an emotion that is temporary and circumstantial. Happiness is an emotion that's temporary and circumstantial. You'll be happy for a time, maybe, if the circumstances in your life are such that make you happy. So in good times, you're happy, and in bad times, you're not. Joy does not work that way. Joy is a permanent state of mind. Joy is the ground you stand on. And no matter what things are swirling around you, no matter what the circumstances are, your joy doesn't change. And so you can be just as joyful in bad times as you are in good. You can't be just as happy in bad times as you are in good. So happiness and sadness don't go together. They're enemies. Happiness and sadness are competing emotions. Joy doesn't compete with sadness. You can have sadness and sorrow in your life and still be joyful. You get me? So there's joy that is not in competition with happiness or sadness. It stands alone when you chase after the face of God and not your own superficial happiness. The problem with searching for happiness, and every one of you have been told by your parents, and for goodness sake, you've been told by your country's founding documents that it's your right to pursue your happiness. And the problem with this is that because your happiness is circumstantial, based on your circumstances, no matter how good your circumstances get, they'll never be good enough. Never. Because when you reach the point that you said you would get to and be happy, you look around you at this point, and there's other people that have better circumstances than you. Right? Especially now with social media. If you get to where you said you would always want to get to, and then happiness eludes you, it's because you look on Instagram and see everybody else having more than you. Imagine, imagine if the starlings had Instagram. And they couldn't only look at the seven starlings around them. Imagine if they looked at all the starlings all at once. Imagine what chaos their murmuration would become. It would be awful. We would not have this beauty. But that's what happens when we pursue happiness instead of joy. And what really drives people crazy, people who have everything except happiness, what really drives them crazy isn't people who have more things. It's people who have less things and more joy. Because those people have not been chasing after the same superficialities. They've been chasing after something deeper. Something real and lasting that's not based on circumstances. That's not an emotion. When joy comes, it comes to stay. Because it's based on the unchanging God we serve. When happiness comes, it comes and it goes. But joy comes when times are extraordinary, when times are basic. You can have the most basic life, be named the most basic name. You can have the most basic things and still have joy everlasting because it's not based on circumstances. When you have joy, even ordinary life is extra. The second thing I think matters, when we're talking about um, finding joy or 
finding God in ordinary life is understanding and remembering, you, you know this, how seasons work. So uh, we get very anxious sometimes when we feel stuck in a season that we don't like. Uh, and others have better seasons going on than, than we do. But the nature of seasons is that they come and they go. They change. That's what the definition of a season is. But it's so easy to forget that when you're in a tough season. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, King Solomon writes as beautifully as anyone ever has about the nature of seasons. And I think everybody knows what I'm about to read. I don't, I don't think everybody knows this is in the Bible. I think it's such a common, even secularly uh, used phrase or poem that uh, people don't know where it comes from. This is from King Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's in your study guides as well, guys, if y'all um, want to follow along there. Solomon says, there is a time for everything and a season, a season for every activity under the heavens. What I want you to ask yourself as I'm reading this is where do you find yourself in this? What, what season are you in? And I'm going to say why this matters in a minute. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What season are you in? I talk to people all the time who are members of the church or are just interested in the church. And, and often they'll talk to me about feeling stuck. In fact, stuck is one of the most common symptoms I deal with as a pastor. Truly, stuckness. I'm stuck, pastor. I don't know what to do about it. I feel stuck. And others around me don't seem to be stuck like me. I'm stuck in my career, I hate my job. I'm stuck with my boss. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm stuck with my spouse. I'm stuck in singleness. I'm stuck with the dating scene. I'm stuck with my kids. I'm stuck with my parents. I'm stuck with my God in my faith. I'm stuck with my Bible reading. I'm stuck with my church disciplines. Like I'm stuck. And nothing really seems to mean anything to me. Nothing touches me. Nothing motivates me like it once did. I don't feel the things that I used to feel. And when you're chasing joy and the face of God, being stuck is just a season. But when you've been chasing happiness and you're stuck, you've got yourself an existential crisis. And when we're chasing happiness and we get stuck, listen to me here, this is so important, when we get when we're chasing happiness and we get stuck, we make some of the worst decisions we ever make. When you're chasing happiness and you get stuck and you see other people passing you by unstuck, those are the moments when you're tempted to take matters into your own hands. Those are the moments when you're tempted to stop trusting God because he's the one that got you stuck. And so you make bad decisions to try to get unstuck out of the rut. 
And, and so you do things like you cut a corner at work and do something you know you shouldn't. And at best, your conscience just persecutes you. But at worst, you're in trouble because you need to get ahead. Or students, you might up your dosage of Adderall without talking to your doctor about it. Maybe you borrow some or buy some from somebody else. So you can try to get ahead in class because other people seem to be doing better than you. You're stuck and you need to do better. So you take matters into your own hands. Or, or that's when you buy something you shouldn't, afford, you shouldn't buy or you can't afford because you're stuck and you want that feeling. And maybe that's the moment that you have the affair you've been thinking about having because you want to feel the love you once felt because you're chasing happiness as a feeling. It's not a... It's not lasting like joy. And so you make bad decisions. Some, some people even walk away from God during a season of stuckness. Because you tried reading the Bible. God, I tried to read the Bible. I, you told me you wanted me to read your word. I read your word. I mean, I gave it 36 hours. God, like, what more do you want from me? Like, you know, like, we get into it and we're like, nothing changes overnight. And, and then we're like, I'm done with this. And then, what's the point? It didn't change anything. I'm still stuck. So we move on. We find ourselves in this tailspin of uh, stuckness that uh, can be devastating to us. Listen, sometimes uh, stuck is just a season. And if you understand what season you're in and you can identify your season of stuckness, there should be comfort in that for you because of the nature of seasons and how they change. And so if you're stuck today, and I bet about half the room right now feels stuck in some way or another, I get it. Don't make the same mistakes so many others do, the same mistakes maybe you've made in the past. Don't try to change your own seasons. Only God can do that. But in your seasons of stuckness, there's something God wants to show you. There's something he wants to teach you. Maybe he wants to teach you the lost art of waiting and trusting the art of delayed gratification, the art of cheering for someone who has more than you, the art of being stuck. The good thing about seasons is you know they always change, but it's so easy to forget that when you forget that it's a season and you think that this is your life now and that everything else is passing you by. That's what happens when we chase happiness we see our stuck season as more than just a season. But listen, when you're seeking joy, you find him in ordinary life. You find him in the stuckness. You praise him the same regardless of your circumstances. You praise him in your stuckness. You praise him in your success. You praise him in the rut. No matter the season, you don't panic because you know God is faithful and seasons change. So what season are you in? This is, a, this is an important thing to remember when we're finding God in the ordinariness of life. Third and, and finally is this. Uh, all I could think to call this, this part of the sermon was just remembering. Remembering well what God has done for you. Remembering well. And this is important because our minds are broken. And I don't know why this is the way that this is. Maybe it's our sinful fallen nature. I don't know why. But your mind is programmed and wired to remember negative things more than positive ones. You're going to recall more easily one negative thing that happened than you are to recall a hundred positive things that have happened. And you know this. This is why most Yelp reviews are negative. 
Because you can have 10 meals at a restaurant, nine of them are perfectly delightful, and the 10th one is awful, and that's the one you yelp about. And it's just human nature for some reason. It's part of our fallenness, I think. And, and so you're going to remember the negative things more. And the way this affects your life in God is that although there was that one time that one time you prayed for that one thing and he didn't do what you told him to do. He didn't come through like he should have, in your opinion. He didn't answer that one prayer. I've seen people distance themselves from God for years because of that one prayer being unanswered the way they wanted it to be. Completely forsaking all the times God did answer their prayers and God did take care of them, look after them feed them, clothe them, love them, provide for them, answer prayers they didn't even know to ask yet. Because he's sovereign, he knows what we need before we even have to ask. That's what Jesus said. Most of the prayers God answers, you never even get around to asking because he provides it before you have to ask for it. But we forget. How easily do we forget? We hold on to that one thing that happened that one time when we prayed or that one time at church when somebody spoke in God's name, something negative to us and just ruins you forever. Have a little backbone. Have a little memory. Remember the goodness of God, the faithfulness, the ways that he's taken care of you. How many of you have ever had to tell your kids there's nothing to eat today? You know how fortunate you are to never have had to tell your kids there's no more water. I mean, seriously, how entitled could we be sometimes punishing God for something he didn't do that one time when every single day of your life he's looked after you from morning to night. When you were nothing but a baby, he looked after you and gave you this life you've been given. You see, when you set your sight on joy instead of mere happiness, everything is extraordinary. Everything is worthy of thanks and praise no matter what the season of your life is. Jesus spoke to this uh, in Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, in his sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about this very thing. He's going to talk about two masters here, lo uh, loving God and loving money. I think that might as well be for us, joy and happiness, the joy of God and the happiness of stuff like money and what it brings. That's what he said. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. Do you believe Jesus? Would your life say you believe Jesus? Do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you wear, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. Now, when you hear this, you have to imagine Jesus not standing in a church like this, standing out in the open. He's telling people as he's showing them to look at the birds of the air. How, how they do not reap or sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? When we serve happiness and seek happiness, this momentary emotion of elation, we come up empty, full of angst and worry that we just don't quite have it yet. When you seek joy in the face of God, no matter what you have 
or how much you have or how good you feel or how good you think you look compared to other people, no matter how good your life seems to be, no matter how how easy this season is that you're in, no matter if you're stuck or if you're soaring, you have joy when you look to the sky and see the birds of the air, how they neither reap nor sow, and your Father cares for them. And if your Father, your Father, Jesus said, cares for birds by dressing them and feeding them and animating them so beautifully, how much more must he care for you, his daughter, his son, made in his image? Don't doubt his faithfulness. He looks after you. Sometimes even the no's are yeses in the long run. He looks after you. He cares for you. And when you understand how deeply loved you've been, you remember how faithful he's been to you. There is no room for this kind of doubt and cynicism any longer. You begin to see that your joy is not circumstantial, that you can be grounded in a rut or you can be soaring high like a bird. It doesn't matter if oil is $100 a barrel or 30 it doesn't matter if, if you're behind bars or you're free as a bird. It doesn't matter. Your joy is the same because God is the same and he has always been faithful to bring you through every season and he will be faithful to bring you through the one that you're in. Trust him. Don't give your trust and faith away to anyone or anything else but the one who made you, who has your best interests at heart, get wrapped up in angst and anxiety and worry and fear, especially not at Christmas when we celebrate God coming to earth, not as an all-powerful warrior king, but as a baby, the most ordinary and basic kind of person. I believe he did that to show us something. That even when you feel like your life is as ordinary as it's ever been, God is there. When you feel stuck and basic, like life is passing you by, God is there. When you feel grounded in a rut, God is there. He is faithful. So put your life in his hands and no one else's. Seek him above everything else this Christmas. Let him show you the wonder and joy he came to give. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your love in good times and bad, exciting seasons and mundane ones. May our joy not be affected or changed. And we find in you the only sustenance that matters. You have never let us down. Our presence and our lives here today are a testament to that. Your faithfulness endures from one generation to the next. So may we trust in you no matter the circumstances and find our joy that is unchanging. In Jesus' name, amen.